Charles here. Welcome to episode 101 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. David Grant, Associate Professor at the University of Northern Iowa. This is one thing I try to teach students too at the at the you know undergraduate level, is that um, you know peer review is 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 part of this cultivating of of an ethos that you learn to say, yeah, you know I, I didn't meet that there or I'm not being clear. Um, I used the wrong terminology. I didn't know what that word meant. And I, okay, now I know. Thank you. You'll hear more from David in a bit. But first, I want to share with you all a CFP sent to me by the editors of the collection. If you would like me to circulate your CFP, conference, symposium, or other academic-related event information, please reach out on our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com or send us an email at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. The CFP is really a call for stories. For a collection titled, Where Have We Been? Where Are We Going? Stories about writing center labor, a guide to labor advocacy, theory, and storying in writing center studies. From the CFP, quote, with the recent bevy of work on emotional labor and wellness related issues in writing center work and the focus on the lived experiences of queer and marginalized writing center workers, we recognize the growing interest in understanding and examining how practitioners in writing center and writing program work experience and understand their labor. Many of these texts engage in ethnography that details the struggles writing center practitioners face in their institutions and, by extension, their work. However, we also know anecdotally of a lot more traumatic, disruptive, and toxic work experiences in our field that have not been shared publicly. These stories are often shared only informally because of fear of retaliation, among other job-related concerns. This project then looks to provide insight into these and other work-related experiences, including what drew practitioners to writing center work and what joys, pleasures they have in doing such work. This project will feature many different forms of stories about writing centers, personal and unofficial institutional histories, testimonies about the experience of laboring, stories of resistance and activism, stories of excitement and joy. We ask you to call upon the autobiographical and engage in counter-historical narrative work. And as the important work of our colleagues demonstrates their need, we ask you to share counter-stories too. 
We hope that contributors' stories and this book will disrupt what Lorraine Code has observed as epistemic bias in ethnographic research, wherein some forms of experience are counted as evidence, whereas others are seen as mere anecdotes. Given that less than a third of writing center directors are afforded the protection of a tenure line, we also feel that direct, anonymous testimony is the best way to disrupt many of our current understandings around the conditions of their labor. However, contributors also have the option to publish under their name. After collecting and publishing stories in a book, we plan to build a digital archive housed by WAC Clearinghouse. We hope that this book and later archive can serve multiple purposes, such as providing research material for practitioners interested in labor, storying, and narrative, as well as offering commiseration and guidance for practitioners in our field. End quote. For more information on this collection, for information on submitting, or to propose a narrative, contact Jeannie Giamo at ggiaimo at middlebury.edu and Dan Lawson, lawso3d at cmich.edu. Submissions are due July 15th. Dr. David Grant is an associate professor at the University of Northern Iowa. For the first phase, as he calls it, of his career, he served as writing program administrator, managing his department's composition courses, offering professional development for instructors, and being a voice for writing on campus. That was phased out in 2015. So he retooled his research agenda to combine his concern with Native American First Nation literacies and ecological sustainability. That led to his article in C's Writing Wakan, the Lakota Pipe as Rhetorical Object, as well as a deeper dive into decolonial rhetorics, such as his collaborative work with Ellen Cushman and others in Rhetoric Review, and a forthcoming collection co-edited with Jen Clary Lemon titled Decolonial Conversations in Post-Human and New Materialist Rhetorics. And that's forthcoming in fall 2022 from Ohio State University Press. He's also at work on a draft theorizing rhetorical materialism in light of thermodynamic relativity. That's a mouthful. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Who are you? What's your name, your title, your institution, your role there? Who are you and what do you do? So yeah, I'm uh, David Grant, and I am a, an associate professor in the Department of Languages and Literatures here at the University of Northern Iowa. Um, and uh, what do I do? Uh, a lot of times now I'm teaching a lot of um, general education courses that I've developed um, in writing studies. Um, we have like many institutions when I was hired here as a uh, faculty in professional writing and technical writing. Um, 
you know, our student population was 14,000. We have, over the last, well, since 2012, 2013 or so, we've lost 4,000 students kind of on average of a year. So um, everybody, you know, it's not me, it's, it's everybody is now uh, in a situation where they kind of have to, you know, say, well, it's, you know, we don't have the, the gravy train of students. We need to figure out how do we appeal to those students we do have? And uh, are there ways and things that we can do, classes we can develop, curricula we can develop that maybe attract more students who haven't thought about our university and our programs before? So, um, so that's what I've been doing um, on the teaching side. And on the, on the research side, I, I kind of work um, across, you know, two areas that are pretty hot right now in rhetorical studies. That's uh, the colonial rhetorics, uh, rhetorics that are not Eurocentrically defined, as well as the new materialisms and post-human rhetorics, which they don't define themselves around the locus of the human. And so I'm trying to really put these things into conversation uh, in a more substantive kind of way than I think that they they previously have been. And in fact, they've been outright hostile in some cases and, and on the side of many of the decolonial scholars, their hostility toward some of the post-humanisms is I think absolutely justified. So I don't think that stops anything. Like yeah. there's more. Well, there's, tension. There. there's tension to interrogate. Yep. Yeah, there is. There is. And I think it's it's productive. So, um, so yeah, I think there's a lot that can happen and could be impact, uh, not impactful, I hate that word, but um, can really help um, resituate and maybe um, produce some real interesting works uh, elsewhere so we can consider. And that's one of my key terms is to consider. What does it mean to really consider? Um, for me, what I'm working out in um, a couple small articles, um, as well as a longer monograph that has no home at this point yet. But um, I'd really like to work out a, a rhetoric of consideration where we're not working just as a big metaphor. We're not working through conventions of, of trope, right? Which is a, a turning based upon one large stellar object, the sun, right? So John Mucklebauer's piece about the tropes of, of rhetorics and whatnot. I mean, it's fine, I'm not against it, but what if we, maybe part of the problem is that there's the one stellar object for the decolonial scholars, it's Europe. It's always in reference to that, that we define everything else. What if we took perhaps Malia Powell and the um, cultural rhetorics new theory, uh, cultural rhetorics theory lab, their idea of constellated, that gives us something that is not tropic or troping, but is maybe sidereal, which is a different uh, way, you know, comes from the Latin uh, constellation, right? So it's the, sort of the ultimate, you know, background against which we see somebody else or which we think ourselves are, are working. So um, it gets wonky after that. So I won't, I won't bore your audience too much <laughs> at this point, but but yeah, uh, working out some of these other more constellated ways of thinking things in a considerate manner, a more considerate rhetoric. You kind of answered these, this next question a little bit, um, touched on it at least. But I think you're right. Absolutely right. Um, Post-humanism, new materialist conversations and rhetoric, of course, decolonial conversations and rhetoric. Um, 
I'm not really asking you what is decolonial rhetoric, right? I'm not really asking you what is new material, new materialist rhetoric, right? But I do want to know, and this is kind of indicative of like rhetoric as rhetoric, capital R. (laughs) (laughs) How are you using it, right? How are you using it? So maybe you do start with a definition of but how do you use decolonial rhetorics? And that's not a great use is not a great word actually to be to maybe say in that way, but for the lack of, of my poor vocabulary. <laughs> right, right. And let you go with it. Yeah. So I mean, how are we using these terms? I mean, that's a that's a great, great question. Um, you know, there is, as we've seen recently, there's tensions even, even over, you know, whose decolonial vision is the one we ought to go with. Um, and there's, there is, you know, I've, I've, you know, we, we purposely, Jen Clary Lemon and I, when we titled our forthcoming book, you know, Decolonial Conversations in Post-Human and New Materialist Rhetorics, like the, the plurality of it. And I've seen in print how there's not a new materialism, but there's new materialisms, right? So it's, it's the plurality of things. And, and it's, it's difficult sometimes to, um, to have a word that is itself singular, but pointing to a plurality and to really then distinguish the, the, the um, differences between the, that plurality, right? Especially when it's those differences who um, they wanna be affirmed, right? They don't wanna be, oh yeah, you're just in that bin over there, right? Um, so I remember working with with Ellen Cushman and um, in the piece with Rhetoric Review and the the Rhetoric Society of America Summer Institute she led. You know, it's not that decolonial thinking or decolonial rhetorics are an alternative, right? It's not a menu necessarily where everything is. Well, there's the European stuff, and then there's these other things, and you have your labels, right? Um, that's again this more considerate stuff. Um, but but they're different options, is what uh, Ellen Cushman said. Not alternatives, but options. Each one capable of standing on its own as a fully fleshed out reference point, uh, because that's how how people really inhabit the world. So um, so I'm trying to use it in a way that um, that honors some of that. Um, that uh, really says, you know, I. You know, like as I think, as you even said when you led into the question, you know, you, we kind of stumble over our language, um, and that's and that's okay. Um, let's not use our terms as well. This is the term, and we all have to use this. This is the way in which I see you, and you you then must behave in that particular way, right? I'm trying to use it to open up possibilities rather than close them down and get so kind of narrowly focused, we lose sight of the, the bigger picture. Spend just a second on post-humanism and new materialist rhetorics as well. What is that to you? Yeah, the new materialist and post-human terms, you know, they're, um, it's, it's so broad and it's so, so different. I would, I mean, I would say that it it um, it makes a similar move to decolonial works in that it 
it says, you know, the European project of modernity has led us astray. I mean, to kind of put it into context. Um, and, and that part of that is the centering of the human on all things. And so it tries to find ways to say, you know, there, what if we decenter the human? What if the human isn't the puppet master of all these tools and, and things? And, and in what ways do, does the, uh, you know, do our tools puppet us, right? In what ways are we kind of slaves to these, these sorts of things? And then, and then what do we do about it? Um, you know, in some sense, maybe we can't do anything about it, but maybe in other sense, you know, maybe there are little bits that we can um, chip away at and, and do better than what we're doing now. So, um, you know, I don't want to, uh, I, I know that there's lots of conversations out there uh, on both sides of the decolonial as well as the, the post-human and new materialist. Um, and so uh, I, I think they, they really all need to be uh, kind of explored and we need to, to be a little careful with our terminology so that we don't, you know, potentially mislabel. But we also need to, um, you know, be considerate in, in the sense of um, when I was doing my dissertation work and, and studying um, uh, some Lakota uh, practices uh, in their culture, um, you know, we'd go into the sweat lodge or something, we'd be invited in uh, which itself is an honor. And, um, you know, they would say they, they, with this kind of this generosity that is not the same kind of generosity that we're accustomed to, I think, in, in mainstream American discourse. You know, they're like, you're going to mess up. You're going to, you know, you'll say something maybe wrong or, you know, maybe, you know, you might offend us or something as, even before we go in, you know, but that's the, the failure of you is not the issue, right? Your failure, your mistake. We don't, you know, the, to, the, what they told me was that they're not about to uh, really harp on that and say, you're therefore a bad person. It's really in the, the, you know, in the response to that. We're gonna tell you, right? And I have by, uh, you know, Native American scholars who I admire and respect greatly and have been friends with for a very long time. I have been called out for some of the white man stuff that I do. And the only proper response that I think I can legitimately say at that point is thank you, right? That, okay, I will strive to do better. I will try to do more, right? I'm probably saying stuff on this podcast that maybe other people will object to, you know, because we're fallible, we're human beings. Um, and so it's really in the response to, oh yeah, I didn't quite, make my point clear i i fluffed on something but that's okay thank you for pointing that out um i don't know that that's really substantially substantively different than say you know peer review right um this is one thing i try to teach students too at the at the you know undergraduate level is that um, you know peer review is 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 part of this cultivating of of an ethos that you learn to say, yeah, you know, I, I didn't meet that there, or I'm not being clear. Um, I used the wrong terminology. I didn't know what that word meant. And I, I, okay, now I know. Thank you. That's an interesting way of thinking about ethos. How else do you talk to your students about ethos? <laughs> so uh, for me, I, uh, you know, I, um, 
all my good friends over in comm studies, they, they have, <laughs> and I get a lot of students in my freshman comp class are like, yeah, comm studies, you know, we learn about ethos, logos, pathos, and, you know, you find these things and, and they've all seen the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the camel cigarette commercial that asks, you know, what, what cigarette brand do you like best doctor? Right. And they see that as, as ethos. And so I'm like, okay, you know, yeah, that's, that's not a bad place to start. Okay. That's part of ethos. You can see that it's in the text. We can explicate it, talk about how it's, you know, norms and in, in reference to societal norms and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that it appeals to a particular character. But I look at it more and try to lead them through a, a deeper conversation about it is, it is the, it is the, the depth of character that, that ethos really is. And we have to, you know, kind of think of it not in our just modern sense, but really, you know, look back to how it was conceptualized, at least among the, the Greeks, um, you know, a few hundred years BCE. So ethos really is concerned with, you know, sort of your standing. It is, it is something that plays out in time. It's not just a, a, a thing in the text you point to, um, but it's something that is kind of accrued. Um, I kind of want to say a bank account, but uh, I'm not sure that that's really the, the, the right one, but it kind of is like that. Um, and so, you know, I, I can walk them through how your ethos is part of your character, your sense of, did you turn your assignments in on time? Did you show up to class? How, um, how well do your assignments seem to be proofread and, and these kinds of things? That all adds to a reading of your character that will affect maybe the end of the semester when you've got a, you know, you're, you're a one point away from getting a C or a B or whatever grade you want. You're one point away and you ask the professor, can I, you know, is there extra credit or is there something, right? That whole character that has played out over the semester, that has some persuasive weight or not in the end. So, um, so I try to really kind of show the, the humanities side of, of rhetoric in, in my teaching. So I hope that explained it. It's, you know, I think it did. A different than just the, the textual, there it is, analyzed. Yeah. Later this year, you have a book yeah. co-edited with Dr. Jennifer Clary Lemon titled Decolonial Conversations in Post-Human and New Materialist Rhetorics that's going to be published by Ohio State, wait, the Ohio State <laughs> University yeah. Press. Yeah. All those OSU alum listeners, don't come for me. <laughs> Tell me, how did this work come to be? What is its genesis? And importantly, what exigencies are driving this work? Mm. So yeah, um, I, uh, when was it? 20, 2019, maybe? I can't remember. Gosh, it was so long. You know, it's like everything before the pandemic just seems uh, like this other worldly time. I don't mean to be Mr. Surveillance Guy. Simply looked at your CV. I think it was at 2018 at the. 20, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't remember what year. Um, but that's when. Uh, uh, so I went to the cultural. In the pandemic, David. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's been just a couple of years of timelessness. I don't even know Absolutely. what's happening. It's this weird warp. So yeah, so I went to the Cultural Rhetorics Conference at Michigan State University in 2018, 
And I was, uh, I was on a panel with uh, Jen Clary Lemon and uh, uh, Bo Falaja. And, uh, you know, we were, um, you know, we, we were, were bringing some stuff about new materialism, but about, you know, what do we do, especially as, you know, kind of, you know, white scholars who are concerned and we want to be allies. And what does that, uh, what does that look like? Right. Um, so out of that conversation, we started talking about, you know, Jen approached me and said, so what do you think about doing a, an edited collection? I said, you know, that's, that's not a bad idea. This, this intersection between these two things, because we had both done stuff with, you know, she had her book on the Anthropocene um, and I had done some work, uh, not only with uh, my, my piece uh, in, in Seas, but I had um, some other things about new materialist rhetorics and ecologies, rhetorical ecologies uh, earlier. Um, so we just like, well, what would it look like? We wrote up a CFP for, for, um, for our, our work. Um, and we thought, well, you know, let's just see what we get. And so we sent it out and, you know, got some, some good responses. Um, you know, and we were like, well, let's, let's just move forward. We think we have enough here to, to kind of do something. Um, as far as the exigencies, one of the things I noticed, uh, and I think Jen noticed as well too, is that the, the range of scholars that, um, that kind of stepped up and said, hey, I wanna be part of this, right? We have, you know, we have, I have uh, um, emerging graduate students, right? Students who are actually, they're on the market now. Um, we have senior scholars uh, who have been, you know, in the game for a long time, you know, major voices. So like Malia Powell is, is part of it. Um, uh, and we have everybody in, in between. Um, we have uh, folks who are collaborating with, you know, uh, like, um, um, you know, some, some collaborative co-edited, co co-authored pieces. Um, folks who got tenure, folks who were still striving for tenure. Um, so it was just a really good kind of rich, um, I think, display or um, response I would say response is better to how broad that conversation can be, right? So, um, so ways in which mentorship works is, you know, ways in which forestry is, is, uh, is rhetorical, you know, uh, you know ways in which, um, you know, as Malia and Andrea Riley Mukovitz say, you know, braiding these things together. Um, and they're all, you know, so each contributor kind of has their own way of braiding. And it's really kind of fascinating. Um, to just to just see that and go, wow, you think it's just these again, these two terms and you put them to, into in next to each other. But when you braid them together, they become almost you know more expansive than they could be on their own. So so hopefully that makes a, a good um, a good intervention. and hopefully it gets uh, a lot of folks to think um, you know more broadly um, to get outside of kind of the, um, the what the sort of you know mainstream um, look of posthumanist and new materialisms again drawing from Heidegger you know again drawing from Latour again drawing you know from you know what else can happen and how do we do that maybe uh, you know with with collaborations with folks who want to help articulate a different tra tradition 
what other kinds of traditions um, might be something that um, that folks want to say, hey, you know, I have this tradition or I'm part of this and, and I want to bring that forward as as what Ellen Cushman says, an option rather than an alternative to. One of the things that I think is so fascinating, first of all, I love hearing you speak about this work and all of your work. Um, Thank you. You do so with such a profound nuance, and I don't want to say diplomacy, but there's certainly, there is a diplomacy about the way that we talk about cultural rhetorics in the field these days, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the things about your introduction that was so enthralling is that you do really encourage this interdisciplinary approach to these subjects. Why is an interdisciplinary approach necessary? I do a lot of a lot of local work. I mean, uh, both my dissertation um, and then even the local work I do here in Iowa focuses a lot on sustainability, right? I'm on our our university sustainability board, and we're we're um, you know we've been working to lay lay the groundwork. It's paying off. You know, we we get a hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget moving forward to do something and we have to figure out how to how to wisely spend this money and 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 generate revenue from it so um uh 150,000 doesn't go far any university but uh, but we're happy that our new pro we have a new provost and so he's he's uh, really done done well in hearing what we have to say um he's also a biologist so that helps <laughs> um but i think it is uh it is imperative um that we do think about um, you know, being broadly interdisciplinary, um, because, you know, part of this, part of what I see is just sort of our moment, um, societally and globally is that the hyper-specialization has its place, but it can't be everything, right? Somebody's got to connect these dots elsewise. Um, and we need to be um, not just passively saying, well, if these other dimensions of things want to show themselves, they will, right? But we need to, we need to actively encourage uh, particular responses and, excuse me, and having particular inquiries that, um, that maybe are a little risky, maybe a little outside, um, but are hopefully in the end collaborative. I would say that that's that's really where the interdisciplinary stuff starts to pay off is when when you get good collaborations, um, and those are you know those are, there's an art to it and and it's it's tricky and you know like I said you know um, my first few years of uh, you know in this job were as a writing program administrator and I think like most WPA folks I made a lot of mistakes made a lot of enemies. Right, um, folks don't want to be told what to do. So there is this art uh, to collaboration that I think is is part of what rhetoric is about. It's a more deliberative model. Um, it's a different kind of politics than the zero sum game we have now, um, and it fosters. Um, and I'm going to do exactly what I said probably shouldn't be done. Right, it fosters uh, a middle voicedness or what what Heidegger called Glassenheit. Right. Um, and he's got a whole, you know, um, for all of his faults, um, 
I've been doing this this bit on glass and height where he I think he finally he, he came up with this at the end of the you know the, the Nazi regime he's holed up in Freiburg and he comes out with glass and height and I think because he saw the writing on the wall he saw the mistake he made uh you know it was too late for him though you know and he never renounced the Nazism which is going to stain his legacy forever however that said uh, the post-war glass and height is that middle voicedness that allowing the other to appear uh, and to come forward is something that is not done just passively, but there is kind of an active role we can take in that. And so um, while I may not be a huge Heidegger fan, you just, you just can't get around him sometimes, right? He's just that big of a figure. So, so I would say it's a collaboration, a collaborative nature. Um, that's what interdisciplinary helps us do. One of the things I always find interesting to ask authors of edited collections is what was peer review like? Uh, what were some of the perhaps successes and maybe even hurdles, right? Taking an interdisciplinary approach with a multitude of voices from different fields and positionalities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you've got, like I said, we had the, the gamut of, of potential respondents. We had established scholars in their field um, and uh, and who could, we knew, you know, they could really anchor the piece, right, the whole, the whole book uh, together. And so that was like, well, you know, how do you, um, how do you approach the established scholar? What kinds of conversations can you have about their writing? What con- kinds of conversations can you not? Um, in what way are they already um, drawing on um, concepts that and, and, and discourses that they themselves have sort of, you know, brought forward, and and you, they did, they can use it as they can use a lot of shorthand that maybe newer emerging scholars can't. Um, you know, at the same time, we're working. I'm working with students who are you know they're in the throes of writing their dissertation, right, and they're trying to get this publication out so they can go on the job market and say, hey. You know, I'm 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 already an established scholar, um, and yet they're tackling a different set of issues, a different set of constraints, um, because the piece that they're writing for us is not a piece of their dissertation, and it can't be. Um, that's going to you know may probably bore some people to death. Um, thankfully, none of our our folks were boring anybody. Nobody was boring. Um, you know, but they're, but they're dealing with a different set of exigencies, different set of constraints, and different set of resources available to them. So, um, you know, they may go too far into the uh, experimental. They may not go far enough. Um, there may be different ways that we saw to help them to frame their argument, you know, because they're still looking at the frame of the dissertation. That's what I need to do, you know. And nobody did chapter three, their methods chapter or chapter two, their lit review. But, you know, you kind of, when you're writing a dissertation, you, you kind of have to adopt that frame to get through the process. But you can't then switch it out into, you know, a, an, an article or a chapter for a book. You got to reframe it. So, um, so working through a lot of those things was, um, it was both very enlightening for me. Um, uh, and it was also work that I liked to do um, to kind of help mentor and coach along. I think it helped me 
in my own teaching, uh, especially because it was, you know, out of this that I, you know, pretty much have said, okay, all of these books, even the, the some of the online open educational resources, um, while those are good, the only thing I really want my students to purchase at this point is a subscription to Eli Review because it's in the peer review. It's in that collaboration that I learned. And I hope that that's, uh, you know, that editing bit that students, if they can do that, they can then learn too and have a richer appreciation of, oh yeah, this is what Dr. Grant meant by a deeper ethos, right? This is what he meant by framing things. Uh, or, you know, here I finally understand the Berkey and parlor metaphor because I saw someone else kind of do that and, and, and then, um, and then get their oar in the water. So, um, so that's just kind of been the, the cap uh, from this book project that I brought into teaching. Um, I had already had a number of students who, um, who I urged and, and really formed some assignments around, hey, don't write for me, write for an undergraduate research publication. So I had already kind of done that and I've had some students get some good success in having their own work published at the undergraduate uh, research or uh, one student who's got a poster presentation that sees. Um, but it was really kind of this peer editing, peer review um, process. That was the, the key that really kind of, I think, opened up kind of a really different pedagogy for me um, in terms of teaching writing. So um, it kind of goes off in a direction, but, but yeah, that's, that's, that's what it was like for me. What do you hope people, when they read your book, right? I don't know, it's an edited collection. So maybe it's more about the introduction than conclusion. Not really, it's about the whole thing. What do you hope that folks who read your book take up and take away from it? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I hope they take away just how uh, rich the, the uh, entwinements here, the braiding together can be. You know, like I said, we have... We have folks who talk about, you know, the mentorship that that they have um, uh, as professor and as grad student. Um, we have folks talking about, um, you know, what do we what do we do with this state forest land? We have folks, you know, one of one students talking about, um, you know, corn in Nebraska, and uh, that the the very existence of the corn is itself an expression of indigenous resistance, right? It is survivance some of these corn varietals that they have. Um, so, so there's a lot of, um, you know, capaciousness, I guess, um, to what can be brought forward. Um, we do call in the, in the introduction how um, one of the things that I'm only beginning to see now, um, but kind of the a real sense of um, that this isn't just necessarily um, you know, indigenous North American or Native American, um, or even because we had, do have uh, some folks who talk about, you know, New Zealand and um, uh, the Rohangi River um, and the kind of Maori indigenous sense. But, but what we hope is not just the indigenous, but we do specifically call for, and I've been following up with, how does the African-American experience play into all of this? Um, we have some folks, we have Latinx scholars, um, but what about South America, right? We, we, you know, we get a lot of stuff with uh, Eduardo Vivirus de Castro, 
sorry if I butchered his name, I think it's Vivirus, but he's a Brazilian anthropologist. He's, he's pretty big in conversations of decoloniality as well as new materialism. But what else, right? What else do we have out there? Um, you know, Africa itself has a rich intellectual tradition. Um, so, you know, what other ways can we focus and center those kinds of discourses and experiences? Um, we have a, you know, one idiosyncratic kind of bit because, you know, we said this is where we are, this is what we're working from. Um, but hopefully, not only can you see the richness that's already here, but it can allow others to, you know, really bring in their own uh, sensibilities, their own ways of looking at it that maybe are different, that are, are not the same because they're grounded in a different history grounded in a different sensibility and legacy. Um, so, so yeah, I would, I would urge people to, to take, make that their takeaway. What else can you do with it? Um, Feel free to decline to answer this question and I'll cut it out. Oh, <laughs> all right. So at Illinois State, I worked um, with Dr. Erica Sparby was my dissertation director, but Dr. Angela Haas mm -hmm. was on my committee. And so, so much of my understanding of this subject um, is directly influenced by her work, right, mm -hmm. toward a digital cultural rhetoric, and I consider okay. myself working in digital cultural rhetorics. Mm -hmm. How does this work, your book, respond to perhaps polarizing conversations about cultural rhetorics that we are contending with today? How does this book respond? Uh, respond to, engage with, uh, push back towards, endorse. I'm really not sure how I'm asking that question, to be honest, David. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think? Hmm. Now I'm you see sure why I, I said you could decline. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, and, there, and there's something I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure I can answer, really. Um, and I don't know what the book necessarily does right um i know that that jen and i work really hard um to not you know tip the scales uh or or lead the conversation one way or another um i know that we you know some folks did speak up when we uh put out the call uh the cfp um oh, yeah? so there, then there was pushback and and we had a conversation about it i mean we listened um and we went ahead, right? We we felt that 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 was um, that you know the, okay we you know we, we note that others you know this is a difficult task and that the ways in which the CFP was written were not always in the best way um, that we would have you know had we done a better job, right? We messed up on some of those things. We didn't think they warranted withdrawing it or retracting it, right? Right. Um, and so we work with that. We work with the uh, contributors so that, um, again, like I said, they're from, you know, there's there's Latinx, there's uh, multiply marginalized people um, who talk about that experience a bit. There's, you know, all kinds of things happening that we felt was was rich and um, was good enough. And then we put it through peer review. Um, and so there were, you know, there was ways in which reviewers saw problems and um, they, they called us out on it, right? And we, we changed it. 
And so um, I think it made it stronger. It made it better. And that's the, you know, that's the, the collaborative work that I hope we can do more of, right? Um, I don't necessarily personally see uh, the tensions as, um, you know, necessarily 100% bad. I know that, um, you know, that, that there's, there's some, there's some goodness in the tension um, and it makes things scary, especially for emerging scholars and graduate students who maybe are invested with particular personalities. Um, um, and, 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 and that's, you know, that, that's a very careful dance and, and, and I'm not gonna prejudge anybody else's um, work or, 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 or saying, um, you know, I will, throw my hat in and say, you know, let's, let's protect folks who are in more precarious situations than we are. Um, you know, I'll, I have to own my own privilege. I am a, a white guy who has tenure at a institution in the United States of America. I mean, you know, um, that's a pretty pri privileged position. Uh, so, so I want to do that in order to call for more collaboration, for more, um, you know, um, I don't want to say necessarily dialogue, um, but to examining the tensions. These things are fraught, um, and I don't know. I just keep look. I keep thinking of um, you know a recent conversation, and uh, and I noted one person who really kind of put their finger on the fact that you know some of these tensions come out of the ways in which scholars are oftentimes multiply marginalized. It's not just one, it's not a battle over one identity or who gets to claim authenticity, but it's because they're multiply messed over. I wanna say screwed over, really, multiply screwed over um, because of who they are and their scholarship and what they're bringing to it, right? And so we gotta be careful with that. Right. If I fail, I fail, uh, you know, I tried. Um, and they can call me out on it. I have the privilege of tenure. So, and I think that goes back to what you said very early in our conversation. It's it's a grateful moment for in many ways as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I mean, you know, uh, nobody who's the contributor ever called me out on anything, but I have had scholars of color, especially women scholars of color, who have you know dropped me a line and said, "I don't think you're." Uh, you know, what you're tweeting or what you're saying here, I don't think that you're um, representing very well. You're, you're contributing to the harm, right? It's the move to move to white settler innocence, right? Um, I probably butchered the frames, but, but yeah, I, I can't sit here and pretend as if I'm innocent. And I don't think Jen, I don't want to speak for her, but I don't think she does either. She's like, you know, we're, we're privileged white people in a land and we're on the side of the colonizers by virtue of birth, right? We can't make a move to innocence, right? And nor should we. Um, so how do we live? You know, how do we live with that? How do we collaborate moving forward so that um, whatever happens on the other side of things in the future is somehow not as bad as what's happened in the past, or maybe really does make a breakthrough into something better? Um, I can't do that alone. I need I need to collaborate. Sounds like a coalition. Hopefully, um, yeah, you know. Um, so, yeah. 
So what's next for you, maybe in terms of your research? Where do you want to go next? Teaching plans, maybe? What's next? So, yeah, what's happening, uh, what's coming up. So I have um, a piece coming out, um, uh, you know, that further explores indigeneity and um, you know, decolonial indigeneity um, and uh, new materialisms. And so that's a little bit that uh, last summer I went up to northern Minnesota and uh, participated in some direct action on the, uh, the stop line three um, oil pipeline because there's a, a pipeline coming through uh, that was, you know, Enbridge, who is responsible for the largest inland oil spill in the United States several several years ago, about a decade ago. Um, and they're, they're saying, you know, all these great things, you know, oh, yeah, we, our pipes are corroding. This will make it cleaner. This would be better, you know, and they're, they're digging these things through. Uh, they consulted with some uh, Anishinaabe folk up there, but not all of them. So it's kind of like, yeah, so who's and why and all these kinds of things. Um, but as I just was doing research and, and thinking about it, um, you know, it, it, it really did dawn on me that, um, that the, the folks who, who are protesting this are not looking for what we frame in the Euro-Western tradition as parties in dispute and let's seek a resolution, right? The only real resolution for stop line three resistors is for Enbridge to pack it up, stop their operations and go away. It's really it. And that is because the very existence of Enbridge is a threat to the Anishinaabe existence as Anishinaabe, right? If they don't have their relationship with the wild rice, the waterbeds, the wild rice waterbeds, the lakes, the rivers, and all of those kinds of things, they, it's like losing a language. They cease to be themselves. And so I'm trying to really kind of articulate that for, uh, for other you know, privileged white people, basically. Um, how can we see this not in our own terms of we have parties in dispute and what's a third way kind of resolution, um, but what do we really do uh, to, to honor that other way of you know, what Ellen Cushman and others have called the pluriverse? Right, the, the plur of them in the Anishinaabe, their way of living, their relations are part of the pluriversal um, uh, uh, rhetorical dynamic. Right, they want to continue to be themselves, not a version where they um, have exceeded uh, their relations, their important relations with others. We see, I think, the same thing with the Lakota and the uh, you know, the the, um, the Black Hills. They're not willing to take the money in reparations for the Black Hills as a third way alternative because then they cease to be Lakota, like in the ontological sense, they cease to actually be who they are. So it's just another colonial move to say, well, yeah, we're sorry that happened in the past. We're sorry this is going on, but here, let's give you some money and, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll find a third way. Some sort of reparations is going to work all work out. So, um, so I'm trying to kind of articulate that out and say, you know, uh, this, this really is important and we need to kind of think about this in, um, in ways that, um, that honor these other ways of being, because if we know anything, it's that, um, 
our own, our Eurocentric way of being is rapidly depleting the earth of its resources, of its freedoms, of its, uh, you know, of its, its vitality in a lot of ways, right? The extractive economy we have is really doing a number and we're heading into a brick wall. We need to find another way to do, to be in a lot of sense. And while we know, as the UN has pointed out, if you give indigenous people ownership and control of the land, by most measures of diversity and ecological uh, resilience, that land does better than if it's operated and controlled by Eurocentric land management practices. So now the question is, we can't just go in and be like, I'm gonna be Anishinaabe now, because that's not cool, right? Uh, but what do we do? How do we maybe move our extractive, um, violent Eurocentric society, um, the modernism that Dussel in Invention of the Americas critiques, how do we move forward kind of following Enrique Dussel to say, at least for me, it's Dussel, um, but there's others, you know, Escobar, Viveros de Castro, others. How do we kind of get out of the, um, the paradigm we're in and into something else without taking over those other people or stealing, appropriating them to us, right? What do we do about that? How do we make ourselves accountable to these other pluriversal ways of being? I wanna ask you about that. I had a light bulb moment just while you were talking and I wanna share it with you. You were talking about the Lakota people and if they're not in the Black Hills, then they're not Lakota people, right? Well, they don't, if they're not, yeah, if they don't, yeah, if they don't have the. I boiled it down. I'm so sorry. Yeah, you boiled it down. But but I, I, I understand where you're going with it. Yeah. That is some foreign to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that, like it clicked when you said that. I was like, Eurocentric people that look like me and you, that we can't because like we can be born in America or in India or in Africa. And we are like, just that's not the way that we think of being and that's really i know that i have work to do is ultimately what i'm getting to with this question <laughs> good good yeah we all have work to do right um yeah so good i'm glad that 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 clicked for you um because that's that's ultimately yeah what i want what i want my work to do is just have a have somebody make a click that they didn't know before right Go, oh i get it so what do you say to people who are like you, who are receptive to criticism, uh, pushback, who know that they have work to do and perhaps want to do that work? Um, I try to support them, right? Um, and, and support them really from, you know, hopefully I can do it from where they are because um, we all come at this different um, we all have kind of our different ways or different ways of doing it. There's no one set way to do that work. Right. Um, but definitely encourage, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of more peer review, <laughs> right. It's, yeah. it's you, you sandwich you. Yep. There's this, you, I phrase your way through it. I, you know, I mean, that's a real reductive way of doing it, but, but I do try to, you know, give shout outs to two folks. Um, I do try to, uh, cite them. I mean, the whole politics of citationality is part of this. Um, the whole, you know, I, I've done some work with C's and, and mentorship uh, of graduate students so that, you know, um, 
so that I can kind of, you know, still support folks who are, who are learning, um, uh, you know, honoring really um, the diversity of, of, of voices and perspectives that are out there is another way to kind of do it um, and really engage with them, not just cite and move on, right? Um, who was it? It was a Latinx scholar who was like these drive-by citations. That's not what I really want to do. I want to more substantively, substantively engage and say, well, what, what is it you're really saying here, right? So, um, you know, and I'll just say, I mean, I love, you know, I, I met Ursula Orr um, in Lawrence, Kansas for RSA stuff. And uh, she's one who, some of the stuff, the spatiotemporal stuff she's doing now fascinates me, right? And yeah. so- um, She's so, fascinating you know, scholar. Right, yeah, she's great. She's absolutely great. Um, so her, I had the good fortune also to meet Matthew Howdick, um, who she's collaborated with, uh, when he was at Iowa. So, um, you know, and I'm here, I'm calling out both Ellen Cushman and Malia Powell and Andrea Riley McKavitz. Um, you know, I've been looking at Christina Cedillo and, you know, she's in the oh, book. She's fantastic. Right. And just, just, you know, just, even if it's just a Facebook, like, like, you know what, I'm, st I still want to do that just to support these folks because they're amazing. I, I'm I'm really really privileged not just to have tenure but to work with really awesomely cool people. <laughs> I mean, there it blows my mind, right? Does your book have a publication date? Uh, the Ohio State University Press has said this fall. Um, so yeah, we're waiting on just the kind of the, the final proofs so we can get the index done. And um, it'll be part of their fall lineup who I, and I think, speaking of also calling out awesome people, I think it was Joe Sue has a, um, a, a book coming out um, with Ohio State University Press. So those will be coming out at kind of the same time, I would say. Take I know they have a book coming out. Yeah, but I didn't but know. Yeah, they've, they've got some stuff. So um, I think, I'm sorry, Joe, if it's, if it's wrong, but, but they're another awesome scholar that, you know, take your research funds if you got them and, and buy, buy the books this fall thanks for joining me on the podcast david this has been i mean this has been really a great conversation for me. <laughs> i have fun too yeah it. yeah no this is fun thanks so much thank you very much see you Charles. enjoyed my interview with David Grant. His work is extremely important, inspiring, and I'm glad he's doing it. Maybe our research paths will cross again one day. I hope they do. Y'all, I am exhausted. This semester, this academic year has been draining. I'm almost done scoring for the spring semester. So I am off to finish that now, but I'll be back next week with another new interview on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people. And we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, 
Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Waccamaw Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stefa Helix, and Bluga 10. <laughs>